0: Welcome to season two of the Preoccupation Podcast. This season explores the mid to late 19th century of Ottoman Palestine, and, uh, and it takes us on a journey with stops in Istanbul, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and of course, everywhere in Palestine. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at preoccupationpod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians. There never was, there never will be. Philistine, Yala Philistine. I, not by you now. This episode will focus on the Tanzimat, a series of reforms that completely transformed not just Ottoman Palestine, but the entire Ottoman Empire. But in order to do the subject justice, I'm actually going to take you back to where we left off in Season 1, with Muhammad Ali Pasha ruling over all of Greater Syria and the trouble that that was causing around the world. Muhammad Ali Pasha's rule over Greater Syria represented a major disruption in global affairs. And this disruption divided Europe, with France supporting the Kadival regime, and Britain and Russia choosing to side with the Ottoman Empire. And before I say another word about why this was the case, There's a theme to this episode that I need you to keep in mind while you are listening. Okay, throughout this entire episode, please, please do not lose sight of the fact that nobody, and I mean nobody, cared about how the indigenous inhabitants of greater Syria felt about their present or their future. Nobody cared whether the people of Palestine wanted a return to Ottoman rule. Nobody cared whether or not the people of Palestine enjoyed Egyptian rule. The fact that the Palestinians had staged a mass revolt against the Khedival regime in 1834 was just not part of anybody's calculation. So with that out of the way, let's explore the European thinking of the time. I mean, what did Europe have in mind as the 1830s came to a close and another Ottoman-Egyptian showdown loomed in the horizon. Recall from the end of Season 1 that Muhammad Ali Pasha was aggressively pursuing the creation of a modern state. He called his project Al-Dawla al adila Al-Masriya The Just Egyptian State. And this state was rapidly bestowing never-before-seen privileges upon the Christian population of greater Syria. Among the Christian populations that reaped the benefit of kadival rule was a community that the French had been gradually working into their sphere of influence, a community who the French were increasingly coming to recognize as their civilizational cousins. This community were the Maronite Christians of Mount Lebanon. The Maronites are a Catholic denomination found primarily in modern-day Lebanon. And it is among these people that the French imperial project was most aggressively spreading its influence. I mentioned briefly in the previous episode that that the European powers of the time looked upon the Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire, both Arab and non-Arab, as unique races in fact, enlightened races, living among what was basically a sea of savages. Essentially, they saw the Maronites through the same lens that they viewed the Greeks who had rebelled against the Ottoman Empire in 1820. The Maronites were just one of several Christian denominations throughout Greater Syria, and each major power in Europe, and in some cases minor powers, claimed to be the official representatives of these allegedly oppressed Christian sects of the Ottoman realm. The French drew ever closer to the Catholics of the region, while the Russians saw themselves as the champions of Orthodox Christians. And just as a side note, all of this is happening while adherence to Christianity in places like France is basically in a freefall, the people dictating these policies were not necessarily doing so because they were themselves devout Catholics. Although, I mean, to be fair, I'm sure some of them were, but this was primarily a political consideration, not a theological one. They understood that if France could peg itself to the fate of the world's Catholics, then wherever Catholicism went, French political and economic influence would follow. And Catholicism was already in places that France wanted to be in. The same held true for the other denominations of Christianity and their imperial benefactors. I'm sure it also relieved some tension at home between the new atheistic Republican French and their Catholic population. This was an opportunity to give frustrated priests and stifled church officials an outlet for their project. And the fact that it was away from the Metropole was a nice added bonus. As for Muhammad Ali Pasha himself, I spent a whole episode last season exploring the reasons why he was signaling to the powers of Europe that he was committed to being the champion of the region's minorities. And to some extent, it appears as though his charm offensive was actually working. The early 20th century Arab historian uh, George Antonius writes, quote, a French envoy, who paid him a visit at the time, was struck with the breadth of his views and the freedom with which he professed them. End quote. Other historians have also made note of France's positive attitude of the Khedive and his policies. Now please, please don't think that France's attitude toward Mohammed Ali Pasha had anything to do with their ongoing colonization of Algeria. No, 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 don't get these things mixed up, these two issues are not related at all. Kidding, of course. Of course, France was looking to consolidate its gains in Algeria, while also looking for ways to strangle its rival, Britain, by cutting off some access points to the Indian portion of the British Empire. All right, so so we've got the French supporting Muhammad Ali Pasha. Well, the Russians, for their part, they were not prepared to allow France's influence to expand. And so in the showdown between the Ottoman Empire and the Khedive, they sided with the Ottomans. They did so despite believing that Ottoman rule had stunted the inherent greatness of Orthodox Christians. The British followed suit and also supported the Ottomans in an effort to limit French influence. And so the lines were drawn in the sand, and I will say this again, and not for the last time, nobody cared what the indigenous populations were thinking. Nobody cared if the inhabitants of greater Syria in general, or Palestine in particular, preferred Muhammad Ali or the Ottoman Sultan. And so, by 1839, a second Ottoman-Egyptian showdown was looming. But this time, the Ottoman Empire would go into the war with the support of the British and Russian empires. And so, what was the cost of this support? I mean, if you're the Ottomans or the Egyptians, you must know that great power support does not come for free. That was true back then, as it is today. As the Second Ottoman-Egyptian War loomed, all the great powers of Europe expected their economic interests and political influence to expand as a result of their help. Try to keep in mind that the Ottoman Empire is essentially the last place in the global south that has not yet been colonized. And so Britain and France are looking to expand their influence into one of the last frontiers left for conquest or exploitation. So yes, Britain and Russia did end up supporting the Ottoman Empire, but the British and the Russians, and actually I should add the Austrians, by the way, made it very clear to the Sultan that in order for the Ottomans to be accepted into the international community, the empire must comply with the conventions of the civilized world. In this case, those conventions included the adoption of the forms and features of a nation-state that believes in the equality of all its subjects, and with the stroke of a pen that is exactly what the Ottoman Empire tried to prove that they were doing. Under immense pressure from European powers, and with the support of the Islamic scholars from within the empire, all of which I mentioned in the last episode, Sultan abdul Majid issued a document in 1839 known as the Hatta Sharif. It has many translations, but it loosely means the Noble Edict. Its contents, to borrow from Butrus Abu Menna can be summarized as following. 1. The decline of Ottoman lands was due to arbitrary and despotic governance. 2. It is a duty to restore the supremacy of the Sharia and law in the state. 3. It is a duty to provide security for life, honor, and and property. 4. No punishment shall be handed out without public trial and verdict. 5. Taxes are to be fixed according to the wealth and means of each subject. 6. Even distribution of the burden of military service according to the size of the population in each province. 7 the enacting of the Sharia laws will guarantee the execution of these fundamentals, the aforementioned fundamentals. And lastly, and this last one is the most crucial, these rights should be extended to all subjects of the empire, Muslims as well as non-Muslims. Edicts and things of that like were read out all the time in the Ottoman Empire. But Butrus Abu Manna adds one crucial detail to this story that demonstrates precisely how serious the Sultan was about these reforms. He writes, quote, The Sultan pledged to take an oath in the Hall of Sacred Relics, not to act contrary to its stipulations, that is the stipulations of the Hatta sharif and that the senior ulama, And state functionaries take similar oaths, an action no Ottoman Sultan before Abdul Majid had ever undertaken. This single document, the Hatta Sharif, marks the beginning of the Tanzimat, a decades long campaign to reform the Ottoman Empire in nearly every way imaginable. Now, if you're listening and you're at all confused about the goals of the Tanzimat, the shortest, simplest definition of the Tanzimat that I have come across was in an article that reads, quote, the goal of these reforms was to unify and centralize the government in Istanbul in the face of local and regional forces in the Ottoman provinces and to limit the involvement of foreign states and their citizens in the empire's internal affairs, end quote. And so that's it. That's the Tanzimat in a nutshell. The Tanzimat was born out of immense European foreign pressure and, as we demonstrated in the last episode, internal pressure from the empire's ulama. And out of these two pressures emerged this This indigenous response to a problem that the empire did not ask for, but could no longer avoid. The problem I'm referring to was to how to stop the slew of defeats at the hands of European powers, how to stop the constant intervention against the Ottoman Empire, the constant meddling in internal affairs, how to bring an end to all of this. The Ottoman Empire needed to change or risk being devoured by its enemies. But the transformation was not, and could not have been, purely imitative. Change needed to come in a way that reflected the empire's Islamic character. Nearly everyone in the decision-making brass in 1839 and 1840, they did not want to become simply another France. They wanted to maintain the core ethos of the empire, but in the trappings of a modern nation-state. And in order to recapture the past glory of the empire, the Ottomans needed needed everything. They needed industry, commerce, a modern military. But in order to build those things, the Ottomans needed the resources of a state. A state that could tax, that could conscript, that could control. A state that could pull material or human resources from one region and rapidly deploy them in another. A state which as I've said a million times, did not exist. And so the first thing that needed to change is that the Ottoman sultan's authority needed to extend unequivocally over the entire dominion upon which he reigns as sovereign. By 1840, the Ottomans had successfully ousted Muhammad Ali Pasha from greater Syria, but their rule now would be very different from the past. No more strongmen, no more local power brokers to rival the sultan. Never again will a Zahir al-Umar or Jazar Pasha rise from Ottoman Palestine. I feel, I feel a little obligated to slow down and offer a disclaimer to this episode. The processes that I'm describing here, this massive force of change, it didn't, it didn't roll out overnight. The Tanzimat as an era spanned roughly from 1839 to 1876. But for the sake of making this episode and a few future episodes digestible, I'm kind of sharing parts of the Tanzimat with you in a manner that, that kind of deliver both cause and effect in one swift blow. So when I say that the era of strongmen was over, what I'm saying is true, but that didn't happen with the wave of a wand the impact of the tanzimat took decades and i'm kind of fast forwarding for you the impact of these policies as if they happened overnight and that just certainly isn't the case but now having said that to the inhabitants of palestine the rate of change may as well have been at the speed of light you know you'll see as this season continues i mean you'll see what the palestinians were seeing in fact every few years, the introduction of a massive policy that turned their lives upside down and inside out. Well, now for the Palestinians, having lived under a decade of Egyptian rule, the inhabitants of Palestine knew what this modernization campaign was going to look like. But now that it was coming from the high port, it was clear that there was no going back to the way things were before. And it really is hard to overstate how seismic of a change this is. To live essentially autonomous lives for hundreds of years and suddenly be thrust into a state wherein you are disarmed and at the mercy of this new institution. This was unimaginable for most Palestinians. Rashid Khalidi summarizes how disruptive the Tanzimat were to Palestinian lives. Quote, The impact of these measures on Arab provinces and other remote areas of the empire was little short of revolutionary. Earlier, many desert, mountain, and other outlying districts had been beyond the effective control of the Ottoman government, with such law and order as existed in the hands of local tribal, sectarian, and feudal leaders. Even in such provincial capitals as Damascus, Aleppo, Mosul, and Baghdad where the central government had always retained a significant presence, as well as smaller centers like Jerusalem, Nablus, and Hama, local notables had enjoyed a dominating position in urban society with their influence often barely mediated by the representatives of the central government. As a result, their freedom of action was great sometimes shading over into insubordination, in which they were often joined by military officers and provincial officials. End quote. So that gives you a taste of what life was like before these reforms. But now centralization reforms and the shadow of the sultan was coming, and there was nothing that anyone in Palestine could do to stop it. Alright, so... If you were paying attention when I read out the fine points of the hat i sharif you'll notice that the first part of the Tanzimat was in essence an effort to centralize governance and establish order. And while that may sound simple enough, that is an incredibly difficult feat to pull off, especially when no such thing had existed in the past. I mean, just look around at our modern world those of us who live in the global north with reliable police services, first responders, whatever, everything else that comes with modern living, I I invite you to open your eyes and look around for a moment. There is a massive social, educational, and infrastructural ecosystem that allows for the state to thrive. This project in a largely rural, overwhelmingly agrarian, overwhelmingly unindustrialized, highly decentralized empire is a tough sell, particularly when the local populations do not really know or trust state officials. As historian Mark Sanigan writes, quote, Ottoman populations, historically mistrustful of the motivations of government census takers, often took pains to conceal themselves from the measuring eye of the central authority, lest their sons be conscripted into military service or they be subjected to a new tax. End quote. And if that wasn't enough, If that suspicion, that distrust, wasn't enough, here's one more major roadblock for you to keep in mind as you consider the Ottoman path to reform. These internal changes, this massive centralization campaign, it did not occur in a vacuum. While this was happening, the gears of history continued to turn and the sharks of Europe were still circling in the waters of the Mediterranean. And because the Ottomans were Muslims, and this was the decisive discriminating factor, and because they were deemed inherently uncivilized because of this factor, these reforms did nothing to stifle the constant intervention of the European powers. This is in sharp contrast with the way that the civilized nations of Europe treated one another. In the 19th century, there was this I don't know what to call it. There was a kind of gentleman's agreement, a sort of boys' club that existed among European powers. This agreement was that civilized peoples did not interfere in the internal affairs of one another. Well, the kind of reform that was happening in the Ottoman Empire? It was also happening in other parts of Europe, at an equally large scale, I mean, albeit maybe in more homogenous societies without as big of a gap to close. But in the case of the European powers and the European polities that were emerging, they were able to implement reforms and expand their bureaucracies. They were able to transform from empires into nation-states without the constant intervention of their neighbors. Well, the Ottoman Empire did not have that luxury. And so due to all of the things that I just mentioned, The need to develop nearly every single state-like institution, distrust of the local populations, constant European intervention. There wasn't a ton that could be accomplished in the earliest decades of the Tanzimat. But in the 1850s, the empire was to receive another kick that would put the reforms into high gear. I'm going to let historian Misut Uyar take us to the next stage of the problems that were being heaped upon the empire. Quote, Unfortunately, the empire did not have the opportunity of long periods of peace and tranquility to carry out the demands of such wide-ranging internal reforms. The ever-present foreign and internal aggression increased the tension between different groups, disrupted economic activity, and dried up the manpower pool. Just 14 years after the proclamation of the Tanzimat Edict, the empire unwillingly became the focal point of the first modern war in world history, the Crimean War, which can also be categorized as a proto-world war." The Crimean crisis has a significant Palestinian connection. The war began in 1853 when Russia, alarmed by the increased French presence in the Ottoman Empire, decided to increase its own presence and moved into Ottoman-ruled Crimea. Their pretense, however, was that they were moving in to better protect the Orthodox Christians of Jerusalem thus beginning a brutal three-year war that saw the ethnic cleansing of 300,000 Muslims from Crimea. You know, I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but I have to say, I've always felt that, and so far as modern anti-colonial discourse in the Arab and Muslim world is concerned, the Russians have gotten off pretty easy. And I think we can point to the communist revolution of the early 20th century as the primary reason for why Russian imperialism fell out of the kind of public view and the discourse around colonialism in the Muslim world. But whatever the cause, the expanse of Russian imperialism into the Muslim world was phenomenally brutal. And the resistance to that expansion honestly was was unlike anything I've ever read. Just listen to this. Quote, When the inhabitants of Okhalgo, that is a fortress town in the Caucasus Mountains, were besieged by the invading Russian army in 1837, women fought beside men. When their ammunition had gone, they flung down rocks at the oncoming troops. When there were no more rocks, the men hurled themselves to death. On the bayonets below. And when the men were gone, the women flung down their children as living missiles and leapt after them. Such was their desperate resistance. Such was the climate of violence. End quote. This is what the Ottomans were seeing on their eastern frontier, in the areas under their sovereignty and within their sphere of influence. In any case... The Crimean War exposed just how far the Ottomans still had to climb in order to achieve their vision of creating a coherent nation-state that could compete with the great powers of Europe. Here's one historian's just absolutely scathing assessment of the Ottoman War effort. Quote, In part, the administration's obvious inability to mobilize people and resources, was a product of conflicting multi-ethnic and religious identities in an empire during the turbulent age of nationalism. While the Christian minorities were increasingly conscious of their respective identities and sympathized with the empire's archenemy, Russia, the Muslim population still respected the norms of bygone classical times, and their lack of national identity limited their contribution to the war effort. The indifference of some of the Muslim groups was so striking and baffling that Western observers could not understand it. The diversity that, for so long, the Ottomans considered an advantage, and that soft touch rule that allowed for very high levels of indigenous sovereignty simply could not compete with the state resources that were being dedicated to backing massive military machines. That is to say nothing, of course, of the massive gap in military capabilities and logistic challenges in getting supplies and troops to the places that mattered. Simply put, the Sultan's attempts to mount a resistance against the Russian Empire proved totally futile. By 1856, the empire was completely broke. Fortunately, and if you can call this a stroke of fortune, Britain did not want to see one of its traditional rivals, Russia, expand its influence. And so the British, once again, swooped in to play savior to the sultan, just as they did in 1839 when the Ottomans pushed back Muhammad Ali Pasha. This time, though, the British, in their role as, quote, advisors to the Sultan, I mean, that's, a, that's a great one, the British convinced the high port that the only way to prevent further intervention was to engage in even more reforms. In order to be part of the international community, As an equal player on the global stage, the Ottoman Empire must make even greater moves to push for equality in its realm, particularly equality of the Sultan's Christian subject. Now, I hope I don't need to remind you that Europe keeps pushing for equality at a time where the British rule as a colonial power over India where legalized anti-Jewish hatred is alive and well in Europe, and where the Russians have their Jewish subjects confined to a swath of territory called the Pale of Settlement. Europe has no interest in religious pluralism here. And British colonial officials have very little respect for the beliefs and knowledges and ways of being of their subject populations. I mean, one British colonial official in India who happened to also be the president of the Education Committee overseeing Indian education, said, and this is a direct quote, quote, a single good shelf of European library is worth the whole of native literature of India and Arabia, end quote. The real concern for Europe then is that their belief that the Christian subject populations of the Ottoman Empire that they're just basically an inherently civilized people living under savages, and such a state is unnatural and cannot continue to exist. Also, these communities represent the potential for little pockets of influence, and they wanted to see that influence expand. So with all of that in mind... The Crimean War gave the British-led Entente the leverage they needed to squeeze even more reforms out of the Sultan, reforms that, in this case, were designed to undermine Russia's claimed pretense for expansion, that is, the protection of Orthodox Christians, while simultaneously expanding the Entente's interests in the Ottoman Empire. In 1856, Sultan abdul Majid issued another edict, this one known as the hatt i and this edict went much, much further than that of 1839. I keep saying again and again that Europe had a very particular idea of civilization in the 19th century, a centralized state which ostensibly rules under the principle of equality. I've also mentioned that Europe's justification for constant intervention is the fact that the Ottoman Empire is an empire that favours its Muslim subjects as the preferred millet. But European intervention in the Ottoman Empire was not just because the Ottomans were openly defying the civilizational standard, but because they were engaged in In a kind of blasphemy in the face of the racial theories of the time. If the Christian peoples are inherently more civilized than the Muslims, how then could they be destined to live under a regime that does not adhere to their worldview? Well, it is under this pressure that the Ottoman Empire, in this second edict, submits to the single most transformative concession of the entire Tanzimat era. And when I say transformative, I don't just mean for Palestine, but for the entire Muslim world. The Sultan declares in this edict the introduction of secular courts to be backed by secular law to be administered by secular government officials. All of this would be outside the scope of, and in fact superior to, the Sharia courts. The introduction of secular laws administered in secular courts by secular judges effectively marked the end of Sharia law in the Ottoman Empire's governance of public life. For those who are not aware, the Sharia is a legal system derived from the Qur'an and the life, teachings, utterances of the Prophet Muhammad The legal system covered everything, from inheritance to the rule of law, from interpersonal relationships to animal rights, the legal tradition that emerged in the Islamic civilization was rooted in a foundational assumption that laws should be based on revelation. Now, I think it is healthy at this point to take a step back, just ask, how did we get here? I mean, weren't the Islamic scholars the ones who supported the first phase of the Tanzimat reforms? Weren't some of the most high profile scholars in the entire empire signatories? to the first edict back in 1839, yes, <laughs> yes, all of that is true. But with the pressure of the world's great powers circling around a bankrupt, fledgling sultanate, the sultan in his inner circle felt compelled to make this concession. There was also the cold, hard reality that the forces of nationalism sweeping through nearly every Christian community in the empire many of whom had the backing of the great powers, were threatening to tear the entire empire apart. In the wake of this new phase of the Tanzimat reforms, the role of Islam in society would recede to an extent that the Muslim world had just never seen before, and at a speed that no one thought possible. Now listen, I have a very diverse listener community, And the listeners to this podcast, I'm very thankful for every single one of you, but you come from a wide range of socio-economic and political and faith backgrounds. So depending on who you are, you may be responding to this bit of information with either glee or gloom. I mean, maybe you believe in an inherent good that is rooted in the separation of the church and the state. Maybe what I just told you symbolizes the downfall of the Islamic civilization. Whoever you are, and from wherever you are listening, it is vital that you understand one thing. And this goes back to the central theme of this episode. These changes, all of them, the centralization, the increased government presence, the secularization, all of these things were contrary to the desires of the VAST majority of the indigenous Muslim inhabitants of the empire, including those in Palestine. We could honestly do a six or seven hour series on just, you know, the social transformations that resulted from the secularization policies of the 19th century. But rather than descend into a long, drawn-out dialectic, I think I'll just try to paint you a picture. Imagine that you are a young man from among the Husseinis or the Khalidis of Jerusalem. Or you're from the Tuqans or the Nimrs of Nablus. Or you're from the Maudi family of Haifa. There's a good chance that you're preparing to become a Sharia court official. Just like your father and his father before him and his before him. You, as a family, are an institution and you're a respected institution. Not just because you are religious figures, but because you help people navigate through the world in a way that is meaningful to them. Now imagine that in the span of a few decades, a social order that had existed largely unchanged since 1517 was flipped on its head. And... While we're at it, I mean, imagine if you're a member of a religious order, you know, one of the Sufi tariqas operating throughout Palestine. For hundreds of years, the Ottoman Empire considered you an indispensable part of spreading Orthodox Islam throughout the peripheries of the entire empire. Your institution once represented a safe place for traders, travelers, even soldiers. But now, with one declaration, you find yourself in an unimaginable fall from grace. But that's not all. Imagine that at the same time, your Christian neighbors, who used to come to you for support, for protection and leadership in times of need, are now being courted by ambassadors of empires more powerful than the sultan himself. And from your perspective, even the sultan now, like the of Muhammad Ali before him, is looking to further advance the status, health, and well-being of your Christian and sometimes Jewish neighbors in order to appease these powerful ambassadors. I mean, how do you feel? How do you feel about your future? How do you feel about your place in the world? And while you try to process that here's the best part despite the extraordinary reforms undertaken by the ottomans the international community so really that meant europe in this case still did not accept the ottoman empire as an equal this did not stop them from intervening in the empire's internal affairs you see The most immediate outcome from the Hattihamuayun edict was its use as a tool in negotiating the end of the Crimean War in the March of 1856. The agreement to end the war became known as the Treaty of Paris, and this edict was used to demonstrate that the Ottoman Empire had become civilized, at least civilized enough not to warrant further aggression, essentially It swept the pretext of protecting the rights of Christians right from underneath the the Russian Empire. But what happens next is just fascinating. It's it's that level of racism and discrimination that I love from the 19th century. In the agreement formed by the great powers, Europe noted that they may not "...under any circumstance, interfere either collectively or as individuals in the relations of His Majesty the Sultan with his subjects, nor in the internal administration of his empire." Okay, so that sounds good, right? But, as one historian has helped clarify here, "...the acceptance of this article in the Treaty of Paris was contentious among the European signatories and was diluted from the original proposition of a formal acknowledgement to a noted acknowledgement. The legal ramifications of this decision impacted perceptions of sovereignty, as a formal acknowledgement would have established in law the sovereign rights of the Ottoman Empire and the illegality of the empire to be subjected to external political interference," end quote. So worked into the Treaty of Paris was a caveat, legally and practically allowing for continued intervention into the Ottoman Empire. Now, let's flip the perspective for a moment. Imagine that you are a Christian subject of the Ottoman Empire. You have no loyalty to the sultan that binds you outside of a very basic transactional relationship that has linked you to the sultan since the dawn of the Ottoman era. I mean, that relationship was basically taxes for protection and the expectation of stability in the future. You've probably never thought about identity outside the scope of your family and maybe your neighborhood church. Things are not that bad for you in Arabic-speaking parts of the empire. You could survive, even thrive in the lands of the Caliph, but the system is not designed for that to happen. And then you see that your French or Russian or British co-religionists come into the place you call home and are able to operate with complete impunity. And they tell you that if you accept their protection, you will be rendered untouchable to even the highest among the nobility of your town now does that sound like a tempting offer so you can see that the tanzimat reforms they were being experienced differently by the different faith communities to give you a picture of how these different communities reacted to the news of the new phase of the reforms just listen to this story with the news of the reforms the french consul in damascus decided to throw a kind of celebration I mean, completely dismissive of how these reforms are being perceived by their Muslim neighbors, right? Historian Andrew Delatola, in his book Civilization and the Making of the State in Syria and Lebanon, he writes about this event quote, The French consul's bias in favor of the elevation of Christian communities was evident by a celebration hosted for the prominent Christian families to mark the occasion. In stark contrast to the celebration, Muhammad Sa'ad al-Astawani. A member of the Majlis Council of Damascus wrote, in response to the Declaration of Reforms, that all the Muslims were ashen-faced. And this is, these are the words of uh, Muhammad Sa'ad. And he says, And we asked Allah Most High to exalt the faith and give victory to the Muslims. There is no power or force except in Allah Most High. End quote. So there is more. I mentioned before that the great powers of the British Entente in the Crimean War expected that their economic interests would be taken care of in exchange for the support that they've offered. Well, their economic interests also required indigenous cooperation on the ground. And so British and French wealth began flowing through the Christian and Catholic communities, creating very powerful banking families in a community that just just decades ago, could never have dreamed of holding such positions. Elon Pape, in his book Modern Palestine, describes the sudden transformation of Greek Orthodox Christians in Jerusalem. And he writes, quote, In quick succession, branches of foreign banks opened, run by local Christians mostly from Greek Orthodox community or by foreigners. In a short time, the Greek Orthodox community became a pillar of the economic elite in Palestine. End quote. Now, if all of this to you sounds like an untenable situation, you are right. By the late 1850s, things are just ready to burst at the seams. Ilan Pape goes on to say, Quote, Christian merchants, Jewish entrepreneurs, and small industrialists from Greece and Lebanon began a period of economic prosperity that was accompanied by a greater sense of security and at times condescending self-confidence toward the Muslim other. Elsewhere in the empire, the newly gained Christian and Jewish self-assurance provoked the anger of dissatisfied Muslim leaders and a large number of less fortunate city dwellers, end quote. Within a few years of the second Tanzimat Decree, the region was to face a watershed moment, a moment so sudden and so violent it takes everyone by storm. This pivotal moment in the history of the region as well as the remaining Tanzimat reforms, give birth to political movements that continue to shape the region to this very day.